I'm Nikki Kristoff, and welcome to Teched Up. Today, I'm joined by policy communications expert Chelsea Kohler of The Pill Club. We're talking about the digital health boom and how the pandemic has shifted attitudes and regulations around telehealth services. Yes, we're discussing birth control, but if you've received any video or app-based healthcare, this matters to you. A note to our listeners, this episode includes some gross generalizations about Gen X, Millennials, and Gen Z, which are 100% based on stereotypes, but also totally true. Chelsea, welcome to Tech Up. Thank you for having me, Nikki. Happy to be here. So you're calling in remotely from San Francisco, and we know each other from our days in the Bay Area overlapping, but you used to be a Washingtonian working at the State Department. I was there from 2005 to 2012, first on the Hill and then in Foggy Bottom. And I just, I think there's an energy to DC that I actually tried to seek in Silicon Valley after this, like, there's always that energy of, you know, new people coming to Washington, hoping to make change. And I sort of miss that. I think it's definitely left the Valley. So it's nice to, you know, that's what I think of when I think of DC. Tell me a little bit about the Pill Club and your role there. So the Pill Club is a digital health company that focuses on women and people who menstruate uh, to lead their healthiest lives. What does that mean? We started with a focus on basic reproductive health services, contraception, making them more accessible and more affordable, honestly, because somebody had to. Um, The average wait time for new patients to see an OBGYN today is 24 days, and that's just to get the first appointment. So This seems like an area that, you know, we can do a little better and be more efficient. In many developed Western countries, you do not need a prescription for birth control. But here in the United States, yes, you you need a a prescription. And then after that, of course, we've all had the pleasure of going to a pharmacy 12 times, you know, a year, or maybe your listeners haven't. But that's the next step. After you get your prescription, then you're going in. In a lot of states, you can't get uh, an advance on that Rx, and you're going every 30 days to get your next prescription filled. So it's highly inefficient. Certainly forget about us coastal folks. I think for people that have to drive a long way to get to their doctor, let alone their pharmacy and are working jobs that are less flexible and have not worked at home during the pandemic at all, because it's hard to stay on this medication and it should be. So in a perfect world, we would have a situation in which people could go into a pharmacy and over the counter by birth control. They can't. The next best thing is they can potentially text with a provider and not do an in-person visit, do even just texting, not even video as a visit to get Mm -hmm. a prescription and check through the list to make sure that it's safe for them to take it and then get it via mail. So they don't have to park and walk into a pharmacy 12 times a year to get a medication that they've been taking for maybe a decade or two decades. Mm-hmm. So these are this is sort of the world we're living in. And what's your job? Your role is to think through what? I think how we explain what we do, not just to patients or potential patients, but also to regulators, to, you know, the pandemic really, there's so few silver lines that maybe one is it's helped folks who had not considered telemedicine a legitimate way of getting care showing folks that have made allowances and emergencies and during COVID to have telemedicine covered or certain telehealth visits covered, even though we're going back to hopefully truly going back to the way things were before and a lot of regular life and societies reopened. I think there's some benefits to, again, if it's a routine uh, re-upping of a prescription that you've been on for a long time, and even if it's not, this is a very, you know, there's 
this is a pretty well-regulated and this is not a new kind of medication. This has been around for a long time and we should be able to help people get on it more quickly. And set aside birth control, this is for any kind of healthcare, including potentially mental health care, which is not allowed across state lines often via video chat, which there were exceptions made in a lot of places, including federally, for this technology that are going to expire and are expiring. And yes. suddenly we've all gotten used to being able to do these visits, as you say, either asynchronously via an app or over video visit. And suddenly where you're physically located, the state where you are standing is going to determine how you get your health care broadly, out, way outside of the scope of just what you guys are doing, right? That's right. I mean, regulatory flexibility here is pretty key to helping people even keep up a continuum of care at this point. The other side to think about is the providers. So you think about how many nurses or practitioners or therapists have also moved around during this time and reshuffled and are no longer located where they were located before. So it allows them some flexibility if you have this cross-state ability to provide care via video. To your point, the patient the provider, and then also the healthcare plans, who I think would also like the care to continue for different for a variety of reasons. So it does seem like something that makes sense to all sides of the equation. And yet, so what part of your job is working on telling this story and your team's job here in Washington, who I've met, part of their job is explaining to regulators the inefficiencies in the system. And actually, your CEO has a logistics background. She does. She comes from... Uber, like us, she she was a co-founder of Eats and started it from the ground up. And so definitely sees the benefits of on-demand healthcare, um, a mom of three. So I think, you know, we've always laughed about how at the beginning of the pandemic, you would never have done a pediatrician appointment remotely. You were like, no, you need to see my baby in person. My baby's the only one that's had this arm rash. Uh, and then you cut to like, none of us ever want to go back in for anything anymore. We'd like to even just do the COVID test and hold it up for them and ask what it means. So I think attitudes have definitely shifted as well. This company was founded before the pandemic, and I think, but it's really been an accelerant in terms of adopting a, a more accepting point of view around this kind of care. There is something of a generational expectation about how healthcare works. So if you say to me, Nikki, you've got to go see the doctor, you've got to go get treated in person to get a prescription you've taken since 1995 <laughs> forever, <laughs> and then you're going to have to go to CVS. Like I'm friend, I know my pharmacist. I know all about my pharmacist. Like I have to see him every every four weeks for the last however many years to pick up something I've been taking. So like, but I'm gonna do it because I'm a Gen Xer, and that's what we do. Like we're just we just take the aggravation that and that's and that's okay. That's that's how it works for us. But there's a new generation, Gen Z, which is anyone under 25. That is your target demographic, and you guys have done some studies and seen some patterns in how they think about healthcare and just in general about Gen Z. So this is backing way up, but how are they thinking about their lives and how they get treatment and how they buy things? Because again, I'll take what I'm given. I'll take scraps because I'm Gen X. Like that's just how we do things. I'm an elder millennial and I feel like we're sort of that in-between of we'll take what we can get, but we'll, we might whine about it. And I don't know what else we're known for, like message teas and drinking wine and a lot of embarrassing avocado toast. Yeah, you guys exactly. are known that what you guys, what elder quote unquote millennials are known for is trying to claim that Super Bowl halftime show when I'm telling yes. you that Eminem's daughter is a millennial. That's dark <laughs> for me. Yeah. And I think millennials are more into finding workarounds in the system to your point. Like we're not digital natives, but I think there have been many of totally well-founded jokes about how a lot of the 
the on-demand economy companies were born out of sort of millennial laziness and thank goodness for that. And, but Gen Z is really interesting to me because like you said, they're born in a post 9-11 world. They grew up in the shadow of the great recession. They are digital natives. And they, of course, like everyone else, have have also endured um, the strange, very strange last two and a half years, you know, in terms not just the pandemic, but sort of civil unrest and uh, racial justice issues and seeing, I think climate issue and racial justice issues tend to be the things at the forefront of their minds. So because of all those things, lots of trust issues, right? 9-11, Great Recession, and then the last two years, they are more aware of danger or more skeptical of stability. You know, then a lot of they sort of they didn't get to see the '80s boom and the excitement. Mm. They did not, you know, so they're sort of reef in the '90s and the '90s. Yeah, it was great. They didn't um, even get the early aughts. I'm rewatching Sex in the City, OG um, Sex in the City. Yeah, exactly. They don't even. Yeah, exactly. They don't even have the the formative experience of the Cosmos and the exactly the I don't know stilettos. I don't think they were stilettos. smoking indoors. Smoking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Being a social smoker. But now on the flip side, I've I've been rewatching to our point of how we know each other. I've been rewatching Sex in the City and she's constantly trying to hail a cab. Oh, which perfect. Is hysterical yeah. to me because I realized that was unacceptable. She's, you know, downtown Manhattan trying to get a cab at three in the morning. Boom. So if they're under 25 and they've spent the last two years, which is a significant portion of their over 18 life in a pandemic world, they are, as you said, skeptical of stability. Are they anxious? They are the most anxious. Uh, who can blame them? Uh, I think if I'd always had access to social media, I'm like, it's truly terrifying to imagine that. I went to an all-girls school from K through 12, and that really seems like a would have been a weapon in those formative years. But I think also, yeah, there's just because of this social first, digital, constant connectivity from youth, they're also much more aware of world sort of like world issues than I was. Right. I mean, they just sort of have a window into everything that's going on, which I think makes them much more socially conscious. Unlike millennials, millennials searching for a workaround, this generation rethinks what can be and how it should be. I think they're much more vocal and like in a totally admirable, you know, admirable way. But I think in general, they also don't accept the status quo around the experience we're describing. We're going to pick up medication 12 times a year. They're just sort of like that literally doesn't make sense. Which then I'd never had anything delivered to me until the pandemic. I think they, most of them have not spent a lot of time in a pharmacy. It's a great point that I haven't really thought about, which is, so again, going back to Uber Eats. So your CEO worked in logistics at Uber Eats, and I've heard her talk about getting a hamburger delivered to your door, which is actually kind of a miracle that that is something that we can do. A hot hamburger delivered to your door. And we now take it for granted, but we have not had that for very long as a, as a, construct. And now suddenly we get everything delivered at any time of day. Although I do want to talk for a minute about people who live in in rural areas where actually, I mean, I'm like a hardcore fan of the post office. I don't know. I just sound like I'm 85 years old on this entire thing. But the post office is critically important for rural Americans. And again, we are living in cities, but there are places you still can't get a hamburger to your door and you might not be able to visit the pharmacy in the middle of the day. But at least if the U.S. Postal Service can deliver your medications to you, any of your medications, all of your medications, that is critically important for your quality of life. Today, we know that rural and urban patients telehealth use or the patterns to date from the last two years are actually the same, which to me means, one, this is still very early trend right? The, which is the sort of tip of the spear. 
but also maybe that there's some, we know that there are insufficient network speeds and this is a whole other, you know, that 15% of Americans struggle to pay for internet. So we know there's that issue, but I think it's another reason to sort of invest in some of the less sexy things people think about in terms of infrastructure. Hopefully Mayor Pete's taking care of that for us. I think Mayor Pete, it, well, he was dealing with the planes not crashing with 5G or whatever he was working on last mm-hmm. week. But yes, definitely broadband is an issue. But this also goes to your point about texting, because if you can use, this has occurred to me before and we've talked about it, it isn't just young people who benefit from asynchronous healthcare via text. It could be seniors too, right? Totally. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that's when I got my, I lived with my parents for a good part of the pandemic and getting their prescriptions on delivery has been life-changing for them. That's definitely something they're going to gonna keep. And that's something we should also think about is as the population ages, again, everyone driving and parking and standing at a pharmacy in line to get prescriptions that they're taking over and over and over doesn't make any sense for that population either. So this seems like win-win. I mean, I know I'm agreeing, we're in violent agreement on this, but I do think that there's a role for the government to play in thinking through how these asynchronous, remote texting, telehealth, or even telephone visits for basic healthcare needs, the things people are getting over and over again, can make everybody's lives simpler. And it's frankly just enormously more efficient. And also in the long term, I think it'll drive down like the systemic underinvestment in primary care in America generally could be some not totally solved. I don't think we can it's not gonna take one solution at all. But I think Clearly, if we could help with rates of inpatient spend from reactive, let's say, situations, issues that weren't dealt with until they, you know, were acute, we can bring down the cost of care. Right. So just regular maintenance care and also preventative care and also hopefully mental health care and all of these things working together, the easier you make it for people. And by the way, we're talking about this. I mean, we have the ability, I have the ability to just go to CVS in the middle of the day and hang out with Dustin on P Street because my prescription. I hope you hear this, Dustin. <laughs> Shout out, Dustin. Don't think I haven't given him my uh, QR code for this podcast. I have. Yeah, but people who are working jobs during the day, who can't get to their pharmacy, who have trouble driving, who might have a reason they don't want to be exposed to people right now as a lot of our restrictions lift, like it just doesn't make any sense. And so no. then you have people not getting preventative care and regular care, and then you do end up with more acute situations. And that's more expensive for everybody. And it's more expensive and more of a drain on their employers, their families, their overall quality of life. And so the Pill Club is doing one piece of this puzzle, which is working on preventing unwanted pregnancies by trying to just make it a little bit simpler to get people oral contraception. We're trying to cut down that 24-day wait to two to three days. Right. So instead of 24 days to wait to get your prescription, it's two to three and then you get it in the mail. What is your last message for people, whether it's people thinking about how to interact with Gen Z? What works? What resonates? Have you like, do you think that do they want viral ad campaigns? I mean, I'm on TikTok because I'm trying to figure out like what's happening. That's table stakes. I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I think Gen Z is just a lot more aware, kind of back to even the anxiousness thing of the world around them, more socially conscious, but also sort of like less to your point, a traditional ad is not going to work. And, you know, that's also, it's interesting to see the rise of influencers because I'm starting to wonder when influencers will sort of, their lens on marketing will change and influencers will be seen the exact same way. But even that content already, I think what resonates most with them tends to be 
firsthand experiences. Like we're already moving away from the unboxings, which was huge when you and I, when I was at YouTube and I met you and you were at Google to somebody really talking about their experience and what it was like and why it was meaningful to them. Even though they have this huge awareness of the problems in society, I think they are also the most compelled and moved by personal stories and connection as a result, then it feels less salesy. So if you let someone try your product and they have a great experience and they talk about it, I think that's a lot more effective than a posed photo with it, for example. It does seem like a generation that really is looking for authenticity. And by the way, my yeah. assistant, who is Gen Z, told me that I'm overusing the word authentic. <laughs> I also received that feedback. But I There's do think that's what they're looking for, right? Authenticity. Totally. They're looking for real, real people talking about real things, not as filtered, not as perfect. Right. I think they are more informed than the average consumer, to your point. They're like, always online. And I feel like I'm always online, but they're more online. Value, connectivity, and expect convenience. So even like saying something is convenient, that's sort of, that's again, assumed and like, doesn't need to be called out as much. I think they want to be a part of the conversation. And then it'll be interesting to see the next couple of years. I know we're making gross stereotypes about people based on their age and generation, but they're- Most of them are positive for Gen Z. I'm like, I, I respect it. They're demanding a lot of things that I think that other generations- virtue signal said like a woman who lives in northern california <laughs> and not like a cynic sitting in washington dc who's like yeah i'm gonna need you to fill this stapler and not complain about it mm -hmm. fair enough so there are also regional differences in how we think about them but i will say this about gen z i have found the gen z population that i interact with are resilient they do seem to have almost a sense of urgency around mm -hmm. what's happening around them. And climate obviously is at the top of that. But I think you're right. They aren't going to just look for workarounds. They actually are deeply mission-driven. And that really doesn't necessarily matter what is most important to them. They are people who move jobs more frequently, have higher expectations of their employers, have higher expectations of convenience and also fairness and what works. And the inefficiencies make no sense since they have grown up with the magic of not just the internet, but smartphones for their basically yeah. their entire existence. And so I think that they apply it in different ways. Like I don't think actually we can stereotype them based on what their politics might be, but they do seem as a group as a group, as a cohort, to be really action-oriented. And yes. they do seem pretty resilient. That's my observation so far. As someone who's largely up until recently managed millennials, which is a different kettle of fish, I feel like this <laughs> is a group that they just seem like doers. They are. I think that they like being a part of the solution and driving the conversation around that. I feel that we're drawing a contrast to my generation, but I'm going to let it go because I think it's sort of undeniable as someone who's on a team that many of whom were born after 1995. There's a lot of, okay, we all agree on that, but now what? And what are we going to do? Poor millennials. I mean, I don't think millennials, millennials right now are everyone from the age of what, 26 to 41. There are a lot of us. There are a lot. And a lot of millennials are doing the parenting and are now starting to become sandwich generation, which is taking care of their parents too. Mm -hmm. I think we got to ease up on millennials. You guys have a lot that. on your plates. It's true. I think people need to give millennials a break. I mean, I know we talked about how Gen Z grew up in almost a set with a lack of our growing up with a really scary lack of a sense of stability. And especially with what's happening with the climate, which seems new to me, but to them has been the case for several years. Yep. For as long as they've been paying attention, they they see these sort of horrors on TV around climate. And I think millennials, we also need to remember, graduated 
right after a huge, almost devastating, almost didn't make it financial collapse and have been sort of digging out ever since and have been having a really hard time achieving the same quality of life that their parents had or even that people just Mm -hmm. several years older like me have had. So anyway, I just think we should give everybody a break, (laughs) cut everybody a break. Everybody gets a pass. Everybody should be able to call their um, doctor via video or at a minimum texting or using a survey to get basic medications. We absolutely need to keep the postal service short up so people can get their medications if they live in rural places. And you're going to keep working on this. Do you have a final message for our listeners, Chelsea? Not at all. Keep listening to Nikki. And for the men, 30 to 50, is that the age? It's 30 to 45. I mean, I don't know why. This is what Spotify and Apple podcasts say, that it's Mm. 30 to 45-year-old men listening to this podcast. Yeah, tell your tell your lady friends about the show. That's the way to sound like a millennial. So I got a chart of the topics that most people listen to on podcasts. The Ooh. number one topic across every age and all genders. The unifier. Is comedy. Comedy. Everyone needs a laugh. Everyone needs relief. Everybody needs a laugh. And then there's a group of people. It's also the people who listen to the, this podcast called um, Info Seekers. And they listen to podcasts to learn something. So there are people who want to laugh. There are people, a smaller set, who want to learn something. And then there are subsects of people like they might want sports or they might want murder podcasts. That's almost all female listeners. And then news is only seniors who listen to news. And technology is almost a almost exclusively men on the top 10 list of the top 10 topics. It's men between 30 and 45. So that's why that's who's listening to this podcast. But in fact, what you are doing is on-demand delivery of a really complicated product that is more important to get there on time and intact than even a hamburger, which is what your CEO was able to pull off. So this is absolutely a tech solution to a a real-life problem. I could have said better myself. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on, Chelsea. Next week, our guest is Laura Shin, author of the brand new must-read book, The Cryptopians. Be sure to follow Teched Up wherever you get your podcasts.